Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And for Easter, we're going to be doing a special prayer. Yes, we'll pray the traditional Regina Celi, Queen of Heaven. It's a uh, special prayer that uh, we say, really expressing the joy of Easter and, um, of course, Our Lady's joy. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of Heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. For he whom you did merit to bear, Alleluia, has risen as he said, Alleluia. Pray for us to God, Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, Alleluia. For the Lord has truly risen, Alleluia. Let us pray. O God, who gave joy to the world through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we beseech you, that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary, his mother, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop talks more about an exciting announcement he recently made regarding the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese and someone with a local connection, Blessed Solanus Casey. Then it's on to the spring confirmation season and what Bishop likes to share in his confirmation homily. Afterwards, it's on to Divine Mercy Sunday and St. Faustina's private revelations received from our Lord and how we are all called to live the message of mercy. The show wraps up with Bishop talking about the Feast of the Annunciation, including what happened and why, as well as Bishop's experience celebrating Mass at the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth. And as always, the show ends with Bishop answering questions from listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop a question for a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and submit it there. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have some news that you announced during the Chrism Mass during Holy Week about a, a special permission that is given to us. That's right. Back in January, I wrote to the Vatican Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments asking for permission to celebrate the optional memorial of Blessed Father Solanus Casey. Mm -hmm. Usually when someone is beatified, it's not celebrated on the liturgical calendar everywhere unless a bishop asks and it would have special meaning or that blessed person, that holy person who was beatified would have some special significance, some special connection to the diocese. Uh -huh. So I kind of wrote my letter saying that Father Casey lived in our diocese at St. Felix Friary in Huntington for 10 years near the end of his life. And I talked about the devotion of many of our people to Father Solanus. And um, it was interesting. I had once uh, written to the Vatican asking about another blessed, and I got a no response. So I, I, <laughs> I uh, in this case, I wasn't really sure if that would be enough. And um, sure enough, just the week before Holy Week, I got a letter back, and they granted the permission. So in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, 
will be celebrating the memorial of Father Solanus Casey on July 30th. As far as I know, there's only one other diocese in the United States that has this permission, and that's the Archdiocese of Detroit, Okay, because he lived even more years there, and of course, he's buried there. And so, is that something every single church in the diocese will do, or they have the option to do it? They have the option to do, because it's an optional memorial, Okay, correct? But I hope everyone will. Yeah, good. (laughs) All right. Well, also, we are in the middle of your confirmation masses, actually, for your spring right. kind of blast of confirmation masses. Are we about halfway through? Or? Oh, no, no. I just began okay. uh, the day before Palm Sunday, so I've only celebrated probably about five, okay. five or six. So I'm kind of still near the beginning of the confirmation season. Okay. And can you give us a, a little insight into the homilies that you share? These Is it the same homily for every Confirmation Mass? Probably? Well, usually every year I try to uh, do a new homily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of go as the Holy Spirit moves me sometimes. Uh, I don't have a text. I, I go down and I address the young people. Last week, of course, it was the octave of Easter. So... I spoke about the resurrection of Jesus and then tied that with the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, which was, you know, something the risen Christ promised. Mm -hmm. And then um, Pentecost took place 10 days after the ascension of the Lord, and Pentecost Sunday is the last day of the Easter season. So during this time, I've been kind of focusing on talking to the young people about the meaning of Christ's resurrection for us and our new life in Christ and how the Holy Spirit is the gift of the risen Christ who helps us to spread the good news of the resurrection, of new life in Christ. But I'll often talk to them about Pentecost and what happened at Pentecost and then tie that in with with the sacrament of confirmation being like Pentecost in their lives Mm -hmm. because they receive the same Holy Spirit that the apostles received and therefore share in that mission to spread the gospel in the world and with the help of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'll often talk to them about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and what they mean. I'll ask them questions about that. But at times the homily does vary according to how the Spirit moves me at the moment. Uh And and sometimes depending on how some of the, the young people answer the questions, it might spur something. Sometimes the saints' names that they've chosen might come up in my homily. And I try to emphasize the idea when they think about their patron saints that that they're also called to be saints and they can mm-hmm. become saints, not by their own power, but by being open to the grace of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You make the comparison of Confirmation and Pentecost, which after Pentecost happened, there's kind of miraculous events happening all over the place, people speaking in tongues, and uh, St. Peter giving this big homily that converts 3,000 people and things like that. Have you ever witnessed at a Confirmation something dramatic or supernatural happen? No, no, I haven't. But I've seen the fruits because I see... Young people will share with me that I'll meet later and say that after their confirmation, they became more active in their faith or it was an important spiritual moment in their Mm -hmm. lives. So I'll get those kinds of testimonies, but no, I've never seen anything miraculous. Yeah. Do you ask questions oh, of yeah. the students? Yeah, yeah, I do. And that's that's good. And I think the uh, it engages the young people. 
It also, you know, makes sure that they're preparing well uh, for the sacrament. And I'm really pleased. I see um, it gives me the ability to engage with them in the homily. And, and sometimes I try at the beginning to kind of get them to relax because they can tend to be nervous. Uh-huh. So I might say something a little funny or something just to get them relaxed. And, and then, they, then they engage more. They're, they're more likely then to raise their hands to uh-huh. answer a question. Shifting gears a little bit, last Sunday was Divine Mercy Sunday. Yes. Can you tell a little bit about the background of Divine Mercy and St. Faustina? Yeah, it was back in the 1930s when St. Faustina, then Sister Faustina, received some private revelations from our Lord focused on God's mercy. She wrote a diary, and you can read about those um, messages that she received from the Lord. It's not a new message because the scriptures emphasize the great mercy of God. Even in the Old Testament, we have frequent references to the great tenderness of God's mercy. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we have Jesus who revealed in the the most uh, extraordinary way and that God is a loving Father who Mm -hmm. is rich in mercy and abounding in great kindness and love. So this really gets to the heart of our faith, the heart of the gospel. So these private messages to St. Faustina really, in a sense, in the 20th century, brought that theme to the fore. And then there were some practical things that our Lord revealed to her that I think really have helped people to um, appreciate more the mercy of God and also to be devoted, uh, more devoted to the Lord. Some of them, as I think a lot of listeners would know, is, is our Lord directed that an image be painted of the divine mercy, an image of him with the two rays of light, one white, the other red, coming from his sacred heart that was pierced with the, uh, the soldier's lance. And um, it's a beautiful image, and the Lord requested that it be venerated first in the chapel of the nuns in Krakow and then throughout the world. So we see that image of the divine mercy, and it's a beautiful image. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes as human beings, you know, Sometimes it can be very abstract, and when you look at an image of Christ like that, it can really move our hearts. And then, of course, it says at the bottom, Jesus, I trust in you. And what a beautiful prayer. I mean, it's so simple. Jesus, I trust in you. And especially to be able to look at that image and, and really believe it and, and to trust that, yeah, God loves me and, and God is merciful. And then we also have our Lord asking that the Divine Mercy Chaplet be prayed, not only by Sister Faustina, but by others. Jesus encouraged or asked St. Faustina to encourage people to say the chaplet. Traditionally, it can be said any time of the day, but especially at 3 o'clock p.m. on Fridays, the hour of our Lord's death. And uh, I know that's become part of the prayer life, the devotional life of many people. Um, And then there's The other request that our Lord made was to celebrate a feast of divine mercy on the first Sunday after Easter. And Divine Mercy Sunday, which we just celebrated on Sunday, it's something that Pope St. John Paul II instituted, and it really has borne a lot of good fruit. 
There's a novena of prayer from Good Friday until Divine Mercy Sunday that a lot of people do. So I think it was a really a gift from heaven that the church received in the 20th century, this private revelation of our Lord to St. Faustina. It seems like the idea of mercy would fit more during Lent than Easter. Can you explain maybe why that was chosen to be a week after Easter part to end the Easter octave? Yeah, you know, I can't pretend to know what the Lord had in mind, <laughs> but I do think it comes at the end of our celebration of the great, greatest act of mercy, which mm-hmm. was our Lord's gift of himself on the cross that brought the forgiveness of sins. And then we have Jesus's appearance to the apostles and then and saying, peace be with you. And then in the gospel on Divine Mercy Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Easter, we always have the gospel of, of St. Thomas, where you have Thomas who had doubted, Jesus appeared to him. And in order to believe, he he had to put it he put his hands in our lord's wounds and then he believed and made that great profession of faith my lord and my god well i think there's something about the wounds of christ i mean that's where we see the mercy of god but then it's christ risen from the dead still bearing those wounds so i think that's very appropriate that the feast of divine mercy be on that sunday when we contemplate the wounds of Christ, who risen from the dead, the victory that he won for us through his death and resurrection, and therefore his mercy spreads from his heart, pierced with a sword, his, his, uh, his loving heart, his mercy is dispersed throughout the world. So I think it is a good time, yeah. I think it makes sense. Yeah. You mentioned St. Pope John Paul II, who is the one that started the feast day or initiated that obviously had a huge devotion to the divine mercy actually passed away on the vigil of the divine mercy which he had set that date Uh, and then also pope francis establishing the year of mercy kind of based off of that Uh, obviously important to our past two popes why do you think the message of Jesus' mercy is something that we really need to contemplate and maybe something that's underappreciated in the world. Well, I think the world is in such great need of God's mercy. I mean, there's a lot of evil. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain, pain that comes as a result oftentimes of man's rebellion against God. We can think of the violence in the world, and we can think of the wars and conflicts and Uh, We can think of poverty and and so many injustices. We need to turn to the Lord's mercy and learn from him. The other thing I often think is part of the whole message is that we have a mission of mercy in the world. The church, I think it was Pope Francis who said the church is to be an oasis of mercy Hmm. in the wasteland, in the desert of today's world. And I think that's really important. But that we're called to show mercy to others, especially our neighbors in need, by our words, by our actions, our deeds, our prayers. So the devotion needs to be connected to our life. It's not enough to have a pious devotion, but also then to recognize the call to live 
that mercy in our own lives, beginning with our own families, the importance of showing mercy towards one another. And then the corporal and spiritual works of mercy that we're called to do. Mm -hmm. That's part of discipleship. All right, well, coming up, we'll chat about the Annunciation, uh, a game called What Would You Do? And we'll have questions submitted by you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. One thing that you can do to support the shows that you enjoy listening to is rate and review them. Leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you get podcasts. Just take a minute and leave a rating and a review so other people can see that you enjoy the show and might encourage them to give it a listen. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we were talking about divine mercy, talked about confirmations. Also, last Monday, we had the Feast of the Annunciation. Uh, I guess maybe we should start with explaining what the Annunciation was. The great mystery, a joyful mystery of the Annunciation. It was um, when the angel Gabriel appeared to the Blessed Virgin Mary and revealed to her that God had called her, announced to her that God had called her to be the mother of his incarnate son. And of course, Mary said yes. And it was at that moment that she conceived Christ in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting this year we're celebrating the solemnity of the Annunciation on April 9th. Usually it's celebrated March 25th, exactly nine months before Christmas. Uh But because March 25th was Palm Sunday, the Feast of the Annunciation gets bumped. And, of course, it's not celebrated during Holy Week, and it can't be celebrated during the octave of Easter. So this past Monday was the first available date. Okay. Yeah. And is there any connection between those words uh, of Mary's at the Annunciation, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And then when Jesus teaches us how to pray, the Our Father says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Almost seems like a little bit of a oh, parallel yeah. there. Definitely parallel. Definitely a correspondence because it has to do with obedience to God's will. Hmm. That was Jesus. I mean, he, he even said, like, my food is to do the will of my Father. Hmm. Our Lord was totally committed, totally dedicated to the will of his Father, which was the salvation of the human race. It's the loving will of the Father. And Jesus cooperated fully to the point of of dying on the cross for us. And Mary is a woman of faith who also, and and St. Joseph, I'd also say, wonderful examples of what we call the obedience of faith, this commitment to do God's will. And you have that beautiful prayer at the Annunciation that Mary says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your will. And we call that Mary's fiat. Fiat in Latin means let it be done. Mm-hmm. Let it be done. So um, that's Mary's fiat. I often think also of St. Joseph because we forget about him sometimes. And But he was so devoted to God's will. And we have no recorded words of Joseph in the gospel, but after he received the message from an angel in a dream about mm-hmm. what had happened, the, the gospel tells us that when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord had commanded him. Mm-hmm. So again, that devotion to doing God's will. Have you been to the Basilica of the Annunciation? 
In Nazareth, yes, yes. And it's, um, I was there as a seminarian when I was on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. That was the first time. And then I was there a second time when I led a pilgrimage maybe about eight years ago with the uh, knights and ladies of the equestrian order of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was then as a priest that I was able to celebrate Mass in the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth. And that was really amazing because if you if you go to Nazareth, you see this um, this church of the Annunciation with this this big dome, cupola, and there's the upper church, and it's pretty massive, pretty modern in its architectural style. That's kind of the parish church for the Catholic community in Nazareth. Okay, but it's in the lower level of the church. There's a a grotto, kind of a a sunken grotto that contains the traditional cave or home of the Virgin Mary. So it's um, it's where the Annunciation is believed to have taken place. But what I remember that really impacted me is when I processed to celebrate, and that's where I was saying mass at the altar in the, the grotto cave down below. Uh-huh. When I walked in, I saw on the altar, there was a a Latin inscription. And the Latin inscription was, Verbum caro hic factum est. Hmm. Well, that just hit me. You know, let me just translate that. Verbum caro factum est means, and the word became flesh. But it didn't just say, and the word became flesh. It added the Latin word hic, which means here. Mm. So here, the word became flesh. I was like, oh my goodness, here on this, at this spot. And then as I celebrated that mass, I was thinking, I'm celebrating mass where the word became flesh. And right here on this altar, the Lord's flesh becomes present in the Eucharist. So it was pretty profound. Yeah. That's amazing. So these places, uh, especially in the Holy Land, that are believed to be different locations that we hear about in the New Testament, for example, do you believe that that is the actual location of the Annunciation, or is it more the holiness of it is about what it represents? You know, that's a good question because, you know, there's historical and archaeological evidence that that you have to look at. Now, Mm -hmm. for example, on the spot of the Basilica of the Annunciation, there have been Christian churches built there on that spot since, I believe, maybe the fourth or fifth century. But then they've had newer churches built. So you can see the remains, and they have them there, that you can see remains of the prior churches that were there. And so for many, many centuries, going back to the early centuries of the church, that was seen as the location. Do we know with absolute certainty? No. But they continue to do archaeological investigations of ancient ruins in Nazareth, and sometimes there's, there's new evidence that comes to light. So I think, you know, that it's possible that that was the very location. If not, it was nearby. Sure, sure. Right. All right. Well, we wanted to 
get to questions that listeners submitted. But before we do that, I thought maybe we could do a, a little game that maybe maybe this will be a re- recurring segment of what would Bishop do? <laughs> so <laughs> I'll give you a scenario just to, and then you can give us maybe what you would do in that situation. So for the first one for today would be if you were preparing to speak with somebody who knew nothing of Christianity and could share only one Bible verse, which Bible verse would you choose and why? And I'll say maybe not including John 3.16, because that's kind of, I feel like that's one that's, we're, we're often uh, is on sporting events and things like that, and that's a kind of a, a common evangelistic verse. What would you inspire somebody with? Could I give you two verses? Sure. I would use John, the prologue of John's gospel, be John chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 14. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh Uh-huh. That's verse 1. Then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. So... I, and we just talked about yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but I think that gets to the very core of our Christian faith. And it has to do with the eternity of Christ, has to do with in the beginning, forever, for eternity. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, that's fundamental to our our Christian faith, and it's an awesome thing to think about, to really marvel at, that God, the creator of the universe, humbled himself, emptied himself, and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, as St. Paul says. So anyhow, hopefully that's uh, an answer that um, can be helpful. If if it was a non-Christian I'd be speaking with, it's quite quite a claim. Yeah. You know, quite a claim. And, of course, we'd have to get into why we believe that. <laughs> sure. Um, and the revelation of God throughout the Old Testament and then in Christ. Uh, and then, of course, all the way up to the crowning truth of Christianity, his resurrection from the dead. But but I think that would be a good place to begin. All right. Well, hopefully that inspires you and I, uh, inspires me for sure. So if you have a question for Bishop, you can ask it by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. We've also got past episodes available there. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Coming up, Bishop will answer questions about his mitre, uh, the Seven Sorrows devotion, Doctors of the Church, and more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We want to thank all those who support Redeemer Radio and support shows like this through donations financially, as well as donating time. We have so many great volunteers that help out around here at Redeemer Radio. If you would like to get involved and are able to support financially or with your time, please let us know. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com or you can stop by the station, either in Fort Wayne or South Bend. We would love to have you as part of the team. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question comes from Chris Watkins from St. Dominic Bremen 
said, Greetings, Bishop Rhodes from the 2018 St. Dominic Confirmation class. The newly confirmed had a couple of comments shared during their post-confirmation debriefing on March 25th. They were very impressed with your humble reflection on your recent trip to Africa and were particularly impressed with the faith and dedication in the church there. They were also very impressed with your height. I pray that they're more impressed with the former than the latter, but we're talking about teenagers. Their question for you concerns your mitre. They were wondering what dictates when you put it on and when you take it off during the liturgy. On a personal note, it was very nice to meet you for the first time on the 18th. I think jobs are always easier when the boss is impressive. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I was kind of surprised when you mentioned that they were impressed with my height because I'm not that tall. <laughs> I'm only expecting. five feet eight. But anyhow, when you said it was, I guess, because of the miter makes me look tall. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was my first confirmation of this season, the spring season, which was um, I celebrated at, at St. Dominic's and in Bremen, and it was wonderful. Basically, the mitre, which is a symbol of the bishop's office, does go on and off various times during the liturgy. And the basic principle is every time I'm listening or speaking to the congregation, I have it on. But any time that I'm speaking to God, in other words, when I'm reciting one of the prayers of the Mass, it comes off mm -hmm. as a sign of respect to God. All right. And actually, you talked a little bit more about the different hats and things back in the July 19th episode, if people want to go back and listen to that. Our next question comes from Todd Aaron from St. Mary of the Assumption in Avila. Said, I was at the Rekindle the Fire conference and would like to thank you for your teaching at the conference and the lovely Mass you celebrated with us. On the altar at Mass, there was a Mater Doloroso statue that was quite striking. Do you know where it came from? I'm learning about the Seven Sorrows devotion and would appreciate your thoughts on it. Thank you, Todd, and I'm glad that uh, you enjoyed the Rekindle the Fire conference. What a great day that was for all the men of the diocese who attended. And I was happy to give one of the conferences and to celebrate Mass with everyone. Todd, to be honest, I don't know where the Mater Dolorosa statue came from, but maybe someone who's listening to this program would know and can call in maybe one of the Rekindle the Fire leaders who who obtained that statue mm -hmm. for the mass but i i really don't know but for listeners who are wondering what is the mater dolorosa yeah it means sorrowful mother so it's a statue of mary our lady of sorrows and oftentimes the statue has seven swords going into mary's immaculate heart which um, represent her seven sorrows but i didn't i really don't know where they got that statue from so maybe someone can call in with that information so thank you todd Okay. Mike Wonker from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Fort Wayne said on March 9th, it was announced on both the Morning Glory and Teresa Tamio shows that it was International Women's Day. They focused on the four women doctors of the church, St. Teresa of Lisieux, St. Catherine Siena, St. Teresa of Avila, and St. Hildegard. Our pastor talked about this in his homily and threw out the question, why isn't our blessed mother considered a doctor of the church? He even suggested that this question be submitted for your show. So I'm simply obliging. God bless. <laughs> I wonder who that 
pastor is from St. Elizabeth <laughs> Antine. Oh, that's Father Dave Voors. Okay, I'll have to get, get him for saying that. I have no idea why our Blessed Mother was never declared a doctor of the church. But to be honest, I think our Blessed Mother, she's the queen of all saints. She's the perfect example of all the virtues. Mm-hmm. Now, a doctor of the church is a scholar who's a saint, so someone who's very holy. Usually they have written quite a bit or have written wonderful theological works or works of spirituality. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we don't have Our Lady didn't write any books, but she's a living book of, Mm. uh, of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And certainly I would say she's the queen of all the doctors of the church. Because they all had great devotion to her. Sure. So it kind of outranks the doctor. It's a step above. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more of your questions, including a question about CRS and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We'd like to thank you for listening to the show and also invite you to follow us on social media. We are at Redeemer Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always like to share different things that we find inspirational as well as past shows whenever they're available. Maybe give you a hint on what's coming up on different shows. So follow us and also share things on social media. It's a great way to share the faith with your friends by sharing things that Redeemer Radio posts. So go to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're asking questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. One of our listeners asked, is it true that Catholic Relief Services funds organizations that distribute contraception and offer abortions? I've seen articles about this possible link for years, and it's causing some of my friends to stop donating to CRS because of it. You know, there have been all this kind of slanderous things that come out, especially from two organizations against Catholic Relief Services. And, um, and, and I can just say, no CRS money goes to fund what we would consider morally illicit, you know. So no CRS funds are used for contraception or for abortion or for anything that mm-hmm. goes against the teachings of the church. Um, We've done thorough investigations of these claims. By we, I mean the bishops. And um, CRS fully and faithfully adheres to the church's teachings. And, you know, one of the things I think that confuses people, and, you know, we have a really careful vetting system when it comes to our activities in more than, you know, more than 100 countries in the world. And we do have partnerships with other groups and with governments and they don't always share our values. Mm. And I think this is where some of these critics make accusations against us, against CRS. For example, I was just in Ethiopia, and I mentioned in a prior program that uh, we distributed food, or we distribute food at 263 different sites in Ethiopia in Mm -hmm. light of the recent drought. And um, we're the main organization that does this. And the food that we provide for the people, which, you know, as I mentioned, a couple million people monthly, is provided by the U.S. government, USAID. 
So they provide the food, and we're the ones on the ground distributing it. Now, it just so happens that USAID has other programs where they'll fund, for example, contraception. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't participate in that at all. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't. It goes against our teaching. So we don't distribute contraception. But there are some critics who don't like us doing anything that in any way partners with you know USAID or the Global Fund or or other entities mm-hmm. other you know governments or even some other charitable organizations well when you do international development work or relief work you do have partnerships with people who don't share our beliefs so we have to be careful and we are careful mm-hmm. that we don't do things that violate church teaching but does that mean that we can't for example, I, I think some of these critics think that, you know, we shouldn't even be distributing food from USAID mm-hmm. because USAID also funds contraceptives. Well, according to Catholic moral teaching, there's what's called material cooperation and evil, and there's sometimes that's illicit and sometimes it's licit. And I don't have time to get into all the, the sure. moral arguments here, but living in the world today there is certain times where we cooperate with evil, not intending evil, because that would be formal cooperation, which is never allowed, but sometimes where we're involved in some way, kind of in a remote way, with things that are immoral. You know, let me give you two examples. If we pay taxes, some of our tax money is going to things that the Catholic Church believes to be immoral. Mm -hmm. That's what we would call licit material cooperation. I would say to some of these critics, well, then why are you paying taxes when some of that money can be used to buy contraception or to do other things that we consider wrong? You know, another thing, very simple. Every time I go to a Walgreens or a CVS pharmacy, and let's say I'm going to pick up a a prescription or I'm going to buy aspirin or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, they're selling contraceptions there. They're selling condoms and stuff. Does that mean I I shouldn't or can't shop at a Walgreens or a CVS? No, I'm not intending to support that. We get into these moral distinctions and it's just not possible to, to, uh, I don't think, in, in the world today, not to be involved in some kind of what the church considers licit material cooperation. So it saddens me how some people like to criticize CRS, and CRS is doing so much throughout the world that's saving tens or hundreds of thousands of lives. You know, you think about our work to provide food, clean water, to fight malaria, we've done so much there, all the mosquito nets and everything, and other diseases, all the things we do to promote education, helping the poor and helping them to support themselves, and in doing so, conforming with Catholic teaching. And we also, I think it's important to know that we have a training program for our thousands of staff around the world, and and it involves informing the staff of the church's teachings on the sanctity of life, on abortion, on contraception. It explains 
YCRS requires that all of our staff uphold the church's teaching in their work. Now, if now and then we find a, a, a staff person who doesn't, we would have to take action, correct mm-hmm. the person. That happens. But, you know, some of these groups that are critics, they're looking for anything they can find. And I, I think they, you know, I don't know what their ultimate motivation is in attacking CRS. But in any event, I could say this, the, the Catholic bishops of the United States, we stand firmly behind Catholic Relief Service and all it does to serve life, the sacredness of human life, and to defend uh, human dignity from uh, you know, the moment of conception until natural death. All right. And for people that want to hear more about the good work that CRS is doing, check out the episode from March 21st. There's a full 45 minutes devoted to the good works of CRS and, and your trip over there to visit them. Another question that was submitted was, we went on a ghost tour in a southern city that is known to be very haunted. Some of the stories of supernatural encounters were pretty incredible. What is the church's teaching on the presence of ghosts or spirits? Well, first of all, you won't find anything in the catechism of the Catholic Church about ghosts. Okay. I would say we don't, the church doesn't have definitive teaching on whether or not souls of the dead can come back and, and appear to the living. Ghosts, in other words. Mm-hmm. Now, I would have to say there's kind of, when you look at the history of the church and the church's tradition, you see various opinions on this. Mm -hmm. Many of the fathers of the church said it was impossible, that they did not believe in ghosts. They didn't believe that souls of the dead could come back and appear to or speak to the living. I mean, you see, I think St. Augustine would be an example of that. But then you find some who felt that, yes, this is possible. So where they said that, and I think they all would agree that, yes, angels and that could appear and saints, but the souls of the dead to appear, there are some reports, there's some writings at the same time where you have these, these theologians, these fathers of the church saying that, no, it's not possible. There are some accounts of it actually happening, and some of the church fathers said, well, those accounts are nothing but lies, but then some believed these explanations and said, no, it's really true. So so the church, as I said, hasn't pronounced uh, definitively on the issue. When you read some of the early, I guess, uh, writings uh, in, in literature, for example, there's the famous Passion of Perpetua and Felicity that was in the third century, uh-huh. where Perpetua is visited by the ghost of her brother. Hmm. Her brother's requesting prayers to help him to get to heaven. So we do have things like that. If you read the dialogues of Pope St. Gregory the Great, there are several ghost stories in that. The Life of St. Martin of Tours has the saint banishing an evil ghost, the ghost of a thief. Some believed in them, some didn't. In the medieval times, there was much more of a belief in ghosts. And and I think St. Thomas said that it's possible that uh, there are ghosts permitted by God, especially stories about how 
maybe the the souls in purgatory would appear requesting prayers and masses for their release from purgatory. That became kind of a common thing in the Middle Ages. So anyhow, you're free to believe or not to believe in ghosts, I guess is what I would say. But I, I want to be really clear about something, though, that the church forbids, and that is any attempt to contact the dead or the use of any kind of occult, you know, what we can call the dark arts mm. to summon a spirit. Mediums, for example, mediums who allegedly contact the dead, oftentimes they're they're just merely frauds, but you know, then you get dabbling in things that can be dangerous because the church does, you know, we do teach and believe in demons. We believe mm-hmm. in the devil. So diabolical things can happen. So I think it's very important not to ever go and see a medium to try to contact someone who has died. Would that include Ouija boards as well? Right. Stay away from? Yes. And if somebody has experimented with these things in the past, is that something that you should bring up at confession? Definitely. Because it's a violation, really, of the first commandment. Okay. And can you explain just briefly then what the difference between trying to reach out to the dead and believing that the dead would be contacting us? Yeah, no, I think the, the thing is one should pray for the dead. One should okay. uh, pray for our deceased brothers and sisters, which the church always does. I think what, what I'm talking about is trying to enter into a contact or communication with them okay. that through mediums. That's what the church condemns. Okay. And thank you for joining us again for another episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Join us next Wednesday at noon for a special episode of Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Redeemer Radio's Shareathon will kick off later that Wednesday, and as we reflect upon the station's mission of spreading the gospel message and how the community can help, we have put together some of the best moments from Truth in Charity, a locally produced program that wouldn't be on the air if it weren't for contributions from our listeners. So join us Wednesday at noon for a look back at some of our favorite Truth in Charity moments and a look ahead to what Redeemer Radio still hopes to accomplish through the generosity of our listeners, especially during share And a hallmark of the Truth and Charity show is Bishop Rhodes answering questions from listeners. If you would like to ask Bishop a question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And while you're there, check out all our previous episodes. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <laughs>